Good morning, and welcome to episode 396 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the BaseballReference.com Play Index. I am Ben Lindbergh, joined by Sam Miller. Can I make an announcement? Yes. Uh, so I won't, I've decided that I would like to do a Effectively Wild fantasy league, oh, sort wow. of. But uh, the, the, because it's an Effectively Wild fantasy league... I would only do it if it were effectively wild. Uh-huh. And so the uh, the league will be relievers only. Uh, it's an all-relievers league, and we're going to go, I would guess, uh, 250 or 300 relievers deep uh, in the draft. And uh, all comers are, are welcome, uh, because the way that we're going to do it, there's no real max on how many people can do this. Uh, but you, um, there. Basically, you'll have to draft 25 or 30 relievers out of a pool of about 300. It'll be slow drafts from uh, starting next week until the beginning of the season, so there will not be a great urgency. You will not have to set aside an evening, um, and it will be set it and forget it. There will be absolutely no effort involved once you've drafted. Uh, there will be no uh, no Yahoo sign up. Nothing that will take any effort whatsoever from you. Um, and it should be fun. Uh, so email, email me before the end of Sunday. Uh, and the email address that's been set up is reliever at gmail.com. Uh, Ben, mm-hmm. do I have your interest? Sure. I'll play my first, send, my, my first fantasy send me an league email. in several years. Send me an email. Ben. So wait, what are the categories or it's actually only going to be two categories. Okay. Uh, uh, one is, um, runs allowed per nine uh-huh. and the other is strikeouts. Uh-huh. So one counting stat, one rate stat. Okay. Fun. It's going to, it's going to be fun. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds fun. I will, uh, I'll post a, a notice in the Facebook group. Yeah. If there, if it, we will keep score of course, but probably only like once a month. And I'll have you post the scores in the Facebook group as well. Okay. All right. <coughs> all right. Uh, building community. Um, all right. So uh, at last, we have we have a moment alone. To now support. you're the villain. You and now I. you're the one who didn't support. <laughs> now you're the one who didn't propose any fantasy leagues. Now everybody's yeah, right. gonna hate you. In fact, I have turned down all invitations to join fantasy leagues. Well, sorry, everyone. Uh, okay. So Friday email show. We get to get our get to let our hair hair down a little bit and talk about some hypothetical questions that you have sent in. Um, speaking of which, I guess I'll, I'll start with this one from Vinit in Milwaukee, who says, "Subject line hypothetical: uh, If baseball were different, how different would it be? Would mm. it only be slightly different or very yeah. different?" That's such a good question. <laughs> yes, one of the best this is- received. It really what and I mean it it is a good question because whenever we talk about changes, the question is would things change? Mm-hmm. And um and I don't know if things would change if if, if things were different. I, I genuinely don't know if things would be different. I mean, when Dan Brooks uh wrote his essay for the BP annual um about the kind of unintended consequences of trying to solve the strikeouts problem, mm-hmm. um the one of the ideas is that that probably things would not be that different. They would uh, they would adjust the tactics, but the incentives would basically be the same. The incentives would still support strikeouts 
from both sides, and so it wouldn't be that different. So in that case, if baseball were different, it wouldn't be very different. Mm-hmm. And in general, I think that it's probably the case that if things were different, they wouldn't be very different in, in, in almost all cases. In fact, the, when Vineet says, would it only be slightly different or very different, you, you, you kind of did this with your voice, but that's all caps. Yes. And I think that the correct question is, if baseball were very different with all caps, would, wait, would, would baseball have to be very different or only slightly different to be different? Because I think uh-huh. if it were very different, then it would be different. If it were only slightly different, it would be unnoticeable. Baseball, for instance, is not different with the DH, right? That probably seemed like a – you could imagine, uh, you know, uh, uh, your granddad and my dad doing a podcast in the 60s and, and proposing the designated hitter, <laughs> and it, it would have seemed very different, and yet baseball is not different. Uh, it's slightly different. It's not. It's <laughs> there, really, it's, there is a DH now. It is barely barely different though like it baseball isn't baseball is not different the dh is a is a difference but baseball is not different mm, you get to have matt stairs now whereas you might not have before uh matt stairs is not playing ben no, come on you're 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 a professional ben you should know this. i haven't let go of him yet um yeah, I don't know. It, if it were very different, it could be football. Yes, right. Clearly, clearly, you could make it different by making it very different. Mm-hmm. Clearly, right? Like if you took out the ball, it would be very different. Like yes. if you if if the first rule you did is there's no ball. Yes. It would be very different. <laughs> it would. And then it would be different. But I I feel like if you just like if you change the compression of the ball it would not be very different. It would be slightly different. Yeah. I mean, for the most part, we've lived through, we've lived through fairly large shifts in the game, I would say. Like, mm-hmm. like almost anything, if, if you were going to suggest a change in the game um, that, uh, you know, change the run scoring environment from, uh, you know, seven runs a game or what, yeah, like seven runs a game to almost 10 runs a game, that would seem like a dramatic difference, and yet I just kept chugging along. I mean, if you played me a game from 1996 and a game from 1972, other than the tint on the screen uh, and you know the the players themselves, um, I don't think I would notice in one game that I was watching a different sport, for instance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're talking about a difference that would it would it would take something very different to make me not be a baseball fan. Or to make you, or to make me notice. even like like baseball less or more. I guess the to me something that's very different would have to be immediately noticeable. Like you would have to watch one game from one era and one game, you know, one game with the difference and one game without it, and you'd have to notice it, you know, in that one game. And I don't think there's anything, anything in the game that is really noticeable that between nineteen say forty, let's say nineteen forty seven, which seems like a significant. A significant difference, but since 1947 to now, I don't know if there's anything that is different uh, and that is that is that is uh, you know immediately discernible in one game. That if you were sitting in um, you know section 30 you know, 39 um, in in the upper deck, that you would be like, whoa, 
this is different than I remember. Uh, maybe there would be some some cosmetic differences. There would be uh, like pitcher windups would all look weird, but the the actual pitches might not look all that different. Yeah. So, so to answer your question, Vinny, no. If baseball were different, it would be at most slightly different. Yes, I agree. All right, uh, two questions from Matthew. The first one, uh, on the most recent email show, you discussed the concept of blackouts on local games. What you said made a great deal of sense, but one thing came to mind. Many teams own their own regional sports networks, and we can probably agree that this is the most profitable format for a team rather than selling broadcast rights. However, why shouldn't a team such as the Red Sox or an Orioles or Nationals sell their game directly to the consumer in an MLD, MLB TV team package for more money, cut out the middleman of cable, and uh, uh, and make more money, and fans who only get cable get to watch sports would save money as well. Uh, given the wild success of MLB advanced media and cable appearances of dying, wouldn't it be wise for baseball or teams to pursue a similar strategy? Uh, it seems to me that they are, or at least some of them have already done this. Um, if we're talking about a team with an RSN making its games available in market live or not live streaming to, to cable customers, that has already been done. I know that the Yankees have been doing that since 2009. They were the first to do it. Yes Network offered its its games streaming to uh, certain cable customers, and I think the Padres did it the same year, and I think the Blue Jays do it, although that's a little different since they are owned by the cable network as opposed to owning the cable network. But there are a few teams that do that, and I think the way it works, or the way it worked as of 2009 at least, when uh, Bud Selig sent a memo around that was published on Sports Business Journal, was that half of the proceeds go to Major League Baseball advanced media, and the other half goes to local interests. Uh, so the team or the regional sports network or the local cable, cable provider. So I don't know why more teams don't already do that, but uh, I'm sure it's complicated to work out legally and with all the parties involved. But um, maybe we'll, we'll start to see that more. And it's, so it's basically a, a reverse MLB TV where you are blacked out of that streaming when you are out of market and you can only watch it in market. Uh, so that is my answer to that. Great answer. Thank you. Matthew also asks, with the increasing amount of incredibly young stars and career peaks coming at a younger and younger age, do you think we'll see a movement to see younger players treated more fairly? If Mike Trout puts up another 10-war season and suffers a career-ending injury, he would make less money in his career than insert washed-up bum veteran will make next season. That seems to punish players that generate most of their value early on, especially pitchers. While unions tend to favor the more senior members, do you think uh, that will have to change with the influx of the most popular players being young, especially when other sports like basketball promise big days early on? Hmm. It's a good question. Yeah. Uh, what would be the impetus? I mean, right. what would what would create the movement that would lead to this? I mean, if you imagine that Mike Trout really did suffer a career-ending injury. It's not as though 300,000 people would go, um, you know, march march for, for justice or anything. It would be like, you know, there'd be some columns written. But who, who I guess the question is, who is capable of putting political per pressure on, on, you know, on the decision-makers? The union is, and the union's incentive 
doesn't seem to be to protect younger players. Mm-hmm. Um, although Trout is a union member. I mean, cl- like when we talk about the union's incentives not being to help younger players, we usually mean amateurs and or minor leaguers. Right. Um, and not, you know, one to six players because they should theoretically be protected. It's not It's not clear to me why they haven't been protected. Maybe it's just too hard a fight. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. Protected I mean, as in they can make whatever teams will pay them. I mean, I think that's just yeah, a, more or less. It's yeah. I mean, that's just the the concession that the union had to give for right, for, yeah. for free agency. I suppose is that they had to give teams some some yeah. savings and cost certainty early on. So yeah, but yeah. at the time, I mean, that was what they gave at the time. That was forty years ago, and yes, like I said, right. it, it might just be that that's too big an issue. Like that they have other issues that are always. Uh, more important and or easier to get than that yeah that would i mean that would be a that would be a a huge change because you have teams now that are really trying to to develop pre-arbitration talent and that's how teams will tell you that they win by getting that kind of player um and if that's not a route to success anymore then uh, maybe that, I mean, if, if that were the case, then maybe you would start to see competitive balance be affected because then you'd really be talking about only wealthy teams being able to have good players at any point. So what, imagine a situation where you didn't have the, the one to six years and at, starting tomorrow, everybody was a free agent, you know, as soon as they are, um, you know, as soon as they are, say you get one year maybe or something then what would the Pirates do in that situation, or what would the Rays do? And do you think that the amount of money spent on players overall would go up? Would the amount of total salaries go up, or would it just be redistributed? Uh, I think it would probably—well, I don't know, because obviously you'd flood the market with players, um, but there'd also be a ton of demand because you'd have so much turnover. I I don't know that—I mean, that was— discussed early on in free agency right where it was like that was like what charlie finley wanted to do or something i think it was just have everyone be a free agent every year um Mm -hmm. i don't know what the effect of that would be but i'm not saying everybody's a free agent every year i'm just saying that there's no there's no one to six there's no club control like like maybe you have club control but you know the instead of having you can still sign long-term deals if you want to Yeah, yeah, you could. I'm just saying that, like, your first, you know, instead of having your first three years, your contract gets renewed at the minimum, and then you get, you know, this arbitration system that artificially suppresses you, uh, you just have it basically be an arbitrator, you know, you're arbitration eligible every year for the first six. The club controls you, basically, but you have to pay, you know, full market value. Well, in that situation, the Pirates wouldn't be able to afford a lot of their guys. So Mm -hmm. it would be like a de facto free agency kind of a thing. Yeah. And um, and so, yeah, if they couldn't afford those guys, where would they spend their money? I, it's hard to imagine. Um, well, it's hard to know. Yeah. Uh, okay. Know. It does seem weird, though, that we have this... It does seem weird that we have this system that's set up that the only good it does is that it makes poor teams better. And mm-hmm. like that's the only reason. Like it feels weird to well, explain to my like saves it, owners money is the the yeah, main yeah, reason. Yeah, good thing I said good thing. Okay. <laughs> so I, I don't know if I said good thing, but that's what I mean. Uh-huh. So 
can, I mean, it does seem like, can you imagine going to Mike Trout and, and being like, no, no, we know you're worth $50 million, and, and yet we have to pay you one hundredth of that because the pirates. <laughs> that wouldn't make any sense. Like, if you tried to explain that to him, rationally, it makes no sense. Like, how is that the only solution to the pirates problem is keep Mike Trout from getting paid what he's worth by the angels? <laughs> Doesn't it feel like all of baseball's solutions to competitive imbalance are weird and like they're all like three steps too many and they all have 10 unintended consequences? <laughs> yeah, well, we've talked about that with the draft pick compensation. That's always oh, the way it's the it works. Worst, man. The draft yeah. pick compensation just kills me. Just up all night thinking yeah. about it. <laughs> uh, next question. Let's do one more question before our, our play index segment. Uh, this one comes from Samuel. He says, your chat with Nick Picoro about Kevin Towers struck some curiosity in my prospect-driven mind. You guys labeled Towers as a 40-man roster kind of guy who sticks to primarily the big league club. Did we do that? I don't remember doing that, but okay. Yeah, uh, no, Nick did. Nick, Nick, Nick said did. that. Okay. Uh, this made me wonder how aware MLB general managers are of the so-called pipeline of prospects throughout the league who will soon be with big league clubs. To give you guys a question, I will ask this. Out of the 30 general managers, how many know who a highly rated but not top 50 kind of prospect like David Dahl is? Uh, I would I would, I would, would say that's an easy call that all 30 would know David Dahl. Uh, you would. I think so. I mean, he's, he's not a top 50 guy, but he is a top 100 guy, at least according to our rankings. And he was, he was the 10th overall pick two years ago. Um, yeah. So, so they would have probably, I mean, most teams, well, I don't know. Would you, would like, I mean, clearly the, I, w I would say the Rays know who he is, but like the Rays wouldn't have probably scouted him because they would have known immediately that he wasn't falling to them. Right. So they might've scouted him a little bit, but it's not like they would have had to have conversations about David Dahl, the player. So it's, and I mean, you know, as a person who reads a lot of prospect writing, a lot of it does just fall right out of my head. Oh Yeah. Know? Me too. So um, there's a lot of names to know. Yeah. I mean, I think any anyone who's taken in the first half of the first round I yeah, think is, is in any GM's head or any, any baseball executive's head somewhere. Um, well, Ben, can I tell you something, though? Sure. I Somebody did once tell me um, that uh, he mentioned um, a GM in particular who didn't know prospects. And... Mm -hmm. <clears throat> who was um, had a reputation for being hard to make trades with because mm -hmm. you'd give him a name of a of a prospect in your system, and he would have to to ask the you know he'd he'd go I'll get back to you and then he'd have to go ask his guys because he mm -hmm. didn't know any of them. So I think that that Dahl is too good a player, but mm -hmm. um, like my impression um, of of this of this guy as it was related to me is that he wouldn't have known. Uh, for instance, um, of the of the three uh, three hundred players uh, who are top ten prospects for their clubs, mm -hmm. my impression is that he wouldn't necessarily know half, more than half of those. Uh huh. Yeah, I can I can believe that. Um, yeah, I'm sure it varies quite a bit by GM. Obviously, you have some GMs who've had scouting background and. Maybe they themselves scout players and go on scouting trips if they're thinking about. Uh, thinking about acquiring someone, whereas other people don't really have that background to the same extent, maybe rely more on their assistants who do. And 
if you think about it, I mean, you can get away with not knowing a lot uh, with the the information that teams have at their disposals now and, and how big front offices are and how many people you can consult about these things and how you can just immediately pull up all of a player's stats and biographical information and scouting reports and everything that you would really need to know. Uh, you can get that at a moment's notice. So... Sure. I mean, when I talk to the people on our prospect staff at BP, I'm always amazed by how many people they know, how many names yeah. they know, like at any level. Those guys it are insane. Like, right. Yeah, those guys crazy. are insane. You ask them the most <laughs> random guy and you ask them about one specific tool right. of the guy and they know the tool. It's yes. crazy. It really is crazy. And and it's not, I mean, there are certainly many, say, like Dynasty League fantasy players who know more than... Uh, or at least are aware of more prospects than some GMs are, I would think. I mean, we get, I get emails about, or, you know, chat questions about like 16-year-old players, 17-year-old players, guys who pitch like 20 innings professionally, or maybe even have not been drafted yet. And it's just insane because people have fantasy leagues where they draft these people years and years and years before they even have a chance of being in the major leagues. Um, so if you're a real prospect hound as Samuel probably is, I would say that you might be better informed or at least off the top of your head would be more aware uh, than than some GMs would be. But it would it would behoove a GM to to have a, a passing familiarity at least with every other team's top prospects. Um, mm, yeah. So yeah. I'm sure the good um, ones are pretty well informed. Yeah. I thought I had something else to say, but I don't. Okay, well then you can just go right into our play index segment for this week. Yeah, so this is the play index segment. Uh, is this also presented by BaseballReference.com's play index? <laughs> I, I suppose it is. All right. Uh, so I wanted to. I've actually wanted to look this up for a while, and I always forgot. Um, and once I, one time, Bobby Abreu had like a reverse split for like like four games into a season. And, you know, when you're trying to find the, uh, you know, something to write about for the next day, you'll take anything. And so I um, <clears throat> I asked Mike Sosha some question at the time about, you know, reverse splits and, you know, whether it's something that, you know, he's seen players develop over their careers or something like that. And um, I might have mentioned this on the show, but the, one of my very, very favorite things about Mike Sosha is that for any question that you ask, of have you ever seen this before or can you think of somebody who's like this the answer is always every single time pedro guerrero and (laughs) so so he mentioned pedro guerrero (laughs) was like that and uh, so anyway that's half of the inspiration the other half is that and was he uh, well ben (laughs) the other half the other half of this was inspired by um, a Sports Illustrated article about Stan Musial that I read that was written in 1956. And toward the end of it, um, there's this section. Although he's not a switch hitter like Mickey Mantle, Southpaw Musial can hit left-handed pitchers almost as well as right. The reason for it, he analyzed, is that after the cards lost, Whitey Kurowski and Walker Cooper, Enos Slaughter and I were the power of the ball club, so to speak. 
And of course, the opposing teams would always save their left-handers for us. To begin with, in the big leagues, you've got to hit both types of pitching. But Slaughter and I saw more than our share. You either hit them or you struggle. They're a little harder to hit to begin with because the ball is breaking away from you all the time. The ball is going in one direction and you're batting another. And if you take your eyes off the ball, it's harder to hit. A right-hander's ball is breaking into you. It's easier to follow. There are a couple of lefties, though, who seem to hit left-handed pitchers better than they do righties. Rube Walker murders lefties. So... I've, I never looked up Pedro Guerrero, and I never looked up uh, Rube Walker, and I decided I would do that here, and, and I, 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 uh, I wanted to go further than that, and I wanted to see how common it actually is. And so um, Play Index has a, um, a play, play Index Splits Finder, which um, is the, you know amazing. And um, so uh, I went to, their, to the Splits Finder, and I uh, sorted for right-handed batters against right-handed pitchers. I sorted them by OPS. I um, clicked on the little box that says uh, career, uh, compare the split to career totals. Mm -hmm. And I set a minimum plate appearance of 3,000 um, against right-handers. So 3,000 in the split, which is enough for Billy Butler. And I figure if it's enough for Billy Butler, that's a pretty good that's a pretty good career, right? You want to mm -hmm. have it be high enough to get Billy Butler in, but uh, lower than that, and you start getting into split madness. And so I ran that, <coughs> and uh, there's 404 hitters that came up. These are right-handers against right-handers. So 404 hitters that met this threshold, and of those 404, there were 31 with a platoon split, uh, a reverse platoon split. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so then I repeated it with lefties, and you can't set the threshold nearly so high mm -hmm. for lefties for obvious reasons. So I had to go all the way down to 1,000 to get a sizable sample. So I did the same stuff um, with 1,000 plate appearance minimum for the split. And in this case, 219 hitters came up. And um, of those, only three were better, which is kind of surprising when you first think about it because the sample is – one-third the size, you would think that the fluke possibility would be just, you know, mountains higher. Hmm. Um, and yet, as we know, the lefty-lefty platoon advantage is considerably uh, stronger than the righty-righty platoon advantage. So despite this sample being three times flukier, the, um, the effect is apparently many times stronger. And there were only three of them that were better. And hmm. um, so, uh, and the, uh, uh, you... Uh, I, once I had these results, uh, I um, uh, downloaded them uh, and put them into a spreadsheet so that I could analyze them. But uh, the, way that, the way that it's displayed, it's very easy to just eyeball. So you can just eyeball and you can see the ones that jump out having a split higher than their, their career totals. Anyway, to answer the, the question, um, Pedro Guerrero, mm -hmm. eight, 850 OPS against right-handers. 850 OPS against left-handers. Wow. He is not he is not one of our 34 uh, <laughs> reverse splitters, but he is as close as could be. Uh-huh. And, and now that I think about it, out of respect to Sosha and Guerrero, <laughs> I probably should have gone the extra decimal point and seen, um, but I didn't. So anyway, uh, the point is, though, that Sosha did have a good eye. Guerrero is very – he's at the far end in, in this regard. Um, Rube Walker. Rube Walker, OPS against righties. Mm -hmm. uh, remember, he's a left-handed batter. Against righties, 579. Against lefties, 995. <laughs> <What>? <laughs>
How many plate appearances? Well, so that's the tricky thing is Walker doesn't actually Walker didn't play that long, and uh, he some of his career took place in an era where splits were not easily uh-huh. gotten, right. and so in fact, this this seems to be uh, largely a, a numerical thing. This is. 1,400 plate appearances against righties and only 104 against lefties. Uh-huh. And so cl- clearly we would not take 104 as gospel. However, 995, <laughs> it's 416 <laughs> points higher. And so for if nothing else, I will say that Musial was on to something. And then um, is Ichiro, Musial, uh, Ichiro is in the group. Ben, yeah. well done. Yeah. yeah, Ichiro is one of the three one of the three lefties. He's 784 against lefties uh-huh. and uh, 775 overall. The other lefties are um, Kelly Johnson, huh. who uh, is is eight points of OPS better. Well, I guess he's not. He's eight points above his career overall total. So he's probably like like 14 points or 12 points or something. So can conceivably still uh, fall beneath that threshold. But of course, Ichiro looks safe. Um, and then, but then here, here's the third lefty. So it's Kelly Johnson, Ichiro, and Ina Slaughter. Oh, the guy that Musial said wow. had to get better because of the thing, right? So like he totally got Slaughter right. So I was pretty huh. stoked about that. Comes full um, circle. And Musial, as you recall, that I began this reading by saying that although he's not a switch hitter like Mantle, he hits lefties almost as well as righties. He didn't really. He 997 OPS against righties, 922 against lefties, um, and so that's a that's a little smaller than the average split for a left-handed batter against left-handed pitchers, but it's still pretty sizable. The thing I love about this whole idea, though, is that I feel like a K, like like the way that Musial is describing, and maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I feel like the way Musial was describing it, and, and almost like the way that I was looking at it with Abreu, is that it's better, like it, it seems like a moral good to be as good against one type of pitcher as the other, like it feels like an achievement. Mm-hmm. But the, the great thing about splits like this is they're not that at all. Like if you, you could just be worse against the other type of hitter. Like Barry Bonds had a big split because he had like a 15,000 OPS against left against righties. And Ted Williams, of, of all the people in this, in this, Ted Williams had the biggest differential between his um, his his uh, platoon advantage and, and disadvantage. But that's because he had an 1115 OPS against righties. So there's actually nothing particularly noble about being at the top of this leaderboard. And yet it, it sort of feels like like, like, I mean, I don't know. It feels like a weird. Anyway, Ralph Kiner is at the top of the leaderboard, by the way, as a righty. He had a, he has the biggest differential between his OPS and his uh, total OPS. Cool. Also, A Rod by like two points is on here, huh. uh, and uh, Mike Lansing is on here. Uh-huh. Uh, Juan Uribe. Um, huh. It's a, it's a, it's sort of a fun list. Um, Matt Holiday. Uh, Mini Minosa, Mini Minoso, uh, Tim Salmon, Ron Santo, Dusty Baker, Kevin Millar, Doug Glanville, <laughs> all names that you've heard. Yes. So anyway. Cool. All right. Cool. Uh, t- two things we have not <laughs> mentioned about the play index. For one thing, there is a free trial. So you can try any play index feature, I believe. Uh, and the only difference is that the results are somewhat limited if you don't subscribe. So you can take the whole thing thing for a spin and see if you can do what you want to do with it. Uh, and then if you want to get the full results, you can pay for it. And the other nice thing is that it comes with a money-back guarantee. Uh, so in the unlikely event that you do not enjoy the Play Index, you can get the unused portion of your subscription back. 
so two more reasons to subscribe to it again with the coupon code BP to get a discount from this podcast. Uh, okay, another question comes from Austin, uh, who asks about the promotion that the Padres are putting on on March 15th, in which any fan over the age of 16 can win season tickets if they are able to hit a, hit a home run at Petco Park off a pitching machine with only one swing, seeing more, uh, no more than two pitches which sounds like something that a listener might have emailed us about at some point. Anyone who played Division I baseball or professionally at any level is exempt from the competition. Uh, so what Austin wants to know, outside of this being a really great idea and a fun promotion for the Padres, it got me thinking about how bad the Padres' offense are gonna, is going to be. So here it is. What, if anything, could a person without any professional experience do in the setting of this competition that would make the team consider signing them? If a 39-year-old softball dad showed up and hit his pitch onto the third deck of the Western Metal Supply building like Matt Stairs in his prime, would the team consider taking him on as a pinch hitter? Or if a 19-year-old built like Carlos Correa with no baseball training and good swing mechanics didn't hit a homer but ripped a double into the opposite field gap, would the team think twice about offering him a minor league deal? So there's a there's a I feel like there's a little bit of a cheat in this premise because it implies that they have to either sign him or let him leave. And of course, like the easy answer is that that like even if he did something to impress them, they'd say, "Oh well, we'd like to see more of you. Can you come by after the game and throw <laughs> some pitches?" <laughs> right. It's not like it's not like there's a clock on on this contract that expires when the ball lands. Okay. Uh, so, so I to I guess the question would be what I I mean maybe the question is more extreme to say what would it take for them to have to sign him right away. <laughs> Right, but what would it do to, to pique their interest? To pique their interest, and and um, can I just say, uh, real quick, that this con this contest is uh, limited to people who are 16 years old and older, mm -hmm. and if ever you needed a reason to hate lawyers, this is it. There's absolutely no reason not to have 15 year olds and four and nine year olds be allowed in this, except that some lawyers made them. <laughs> like, so, like, why can't a nine-year-old do it? Like, you're worried about losing all your tickets to nine-year-olds? Like, that's a terrible thing? Like, a nine-year-old is going to do it and you're going to go broke? It's um, horrible. Nine-year-olds should totally be allowed to do this, but a lawyer's like, not a good idea. Well, if it's a one-day event that takes time up, maybe you just wouldn't want to waste your time with nine-year-olds. With kids, yeah. Why would you want kids to come to the park <laughs> and have a good time? Like, who would want kids on a baseball field? That's a terrible idea. No, a lawyer. Lawyers did this. Uh, I did this once, you know, not this contest, but I it, angels uh, used to let you bring canned food the day be, the day after Thanksgiving, and for every can you brought, you'd get a swing um, on the field, mm -hmm. and that was one of the greatest days of my life. I waited about How four many hours. Did you bring twenty? It was the max you could bring was oh, twenty. Okay. <laughs> uh, and so uh, you wait about four hours in the stands. There's a, there were a couple hundred people there. And uh, you just sit there in the sun until it's your turn, and then you go on. You're totally super nervous. And I think a guy pitched to me. Um, there was a guy pitching, but I can't remember whether the, the guy pitching was the default or whether he was what they brought out if you couldn't hit the machine. But anyway, uh, I one-hopped the wall mm. on one. Nice. Uh, right, right down the line. Right, It was probably five feet foul. It was right in the corner. Um, so it's not totally it's unrealistic. It's a tough power park, too. Uh, yeah, although that line, that corner juts out a little. 
Mm. Um, so the uh, that's totally something they could lose. I mean, one swing is tough to get right. But there was a guy there who hit, who hit a few out. Uh, well, I think I only remember one or two guys in the entire four hours hitting hitting him out. But there were a couple guys who hit. Chris, Maybe they were that person. Players yeah, there. could have been a D one person. Um, so so uh, I would say though that if you were a seventeen year old kid and you came out and you hit one uh, on the first swing, uh, four twenty the other way for mm-hmm. a home run, uh-huh. you'd get a you'd get a call. Yeah, sure. What if you were? What if you're old, but you hit one like 500 feet? How old? <laughs> uh, 33. Are you in good shape? Do you look good? Yeah, you look reasonably fit. Uh, got the good face. <laughs> yes, got the good face. Red, red hair. Mm, no, no red hair. Um. I think 500 probably gets you a call. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't know that. I think that four, I guess that 455 gets you a uh, joking conversation that if you pushed it a little bit could turn serious. <laughs> like 455, you'd have a guy go, well, we should sign you up. And then you'd laugh and then you'd be shy and you'd go home. But if you weren't shy mm-hmm. and you pushed it, you could probably get another look. Get another swing, yeah. <clears throat> well, uh, if but certainly, and, and I mean, there is D1 excludes junior college. I'm sure there are junior college guys who, uh, you know, actually will get drafted and so could conceivably look good enough, but it'd be tough. You'd have to really do something. Well, if anyone. I'll stick with my 17. I'll stick <laughs> with my 17, 420 the other way. That's my minimums. If anyone who uh, listens to the show is at this competition or participates in this competition, please, please let us know. Let us know if you see anyone. Uh, any 17-year-olds hit one 420 the other way, especially if you are that person. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, man, I like the questions this week. Um, <sighs> I guess I will go with uh, this one from Jeff. Is there any value at the major league level in trying to impact the mental state or focus of your opponent if before Game 5 of the NLDS, the Cardinals had let it slip to the media that they had found that Garrett Cole was tipping his pitches, do you believe, one, that Pirates coaches would spend enough time trying to find the flaw on video that it would impact the team's preparation? Or two, even if Pirates coaches told Cole that the story was made up and his mechanics were flawless, Cole himself would be worried enough that it would impact his performance? If so, in either case, how much would this swing expected winning percentage for the game? The first one, no. The the first example, I would say not at all. <coughs> would you say uh, that it would at least make them look? Could yeah. the Cardinals say made you look at, after that? Oh, yeah, they could definitely. They yes. could definitely may, say made you look. There's no doubt they would look. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, but the, uh, but, the coaches but coach, have enough coaches time. time is, <laughs> like, coaches' time is not like Major League Baseball's great scarcity. <laughs> right. Um, uh, but as to the latter... It's a, it's a good question. You know what else uh, you could imagine? Uh, like if, well, if you, huh, like, yeah, I don't know. I wonder how else you could, like, could you imagine if the, say, Adam Wainwright, I don't know who started that game, but had like sort of leaked, if, if somehow had arranged it for it to be leaked that he was scuffing his pitches mm. or like, uh, you know, throwing a spitball. 
Mm-hmm. And of course he wasn't, so he didn't, and he knew he had planted the story, so he wasn't worried about getting caught doing a thing he wasn't doing. You could see that psyching them out too, right? Yeah, possibly. It's very, in my experience playing sports, it is very easy to psych guys out. Psyching out is, uh, is course, fairly easy. You are not playing against major league players who are probably more resistant to being right, psyched out. Psych resistant, yeah. Um, uh, so I, uh, I can see it, but... Um, worth a shot. Yeah. Uh, of course, it would be considered Bush League and they would claim mm-hmm. that it was against the unwritten rules. Yeah, if if anyone found out where the where the tip came from. Do you uh what so um how much would you how much would you say it would shift win expectancy? <laughs> in in this specific situation, let's say what was the story he was tipping his pitches, huh? Yes. What, and you'd have to you probably wouldn't want to leak it too soon because if it would give the story too much time to get debunked, you know? mm mm-hmm. Mhm. Especially because Garrett Cole was coming in on such an incredible run mm-hmm. that obviously nobody else had picked up on it. They, you know, they claim that if you're tipping your pitches, like you know, any dugout will notice it in like five minutes. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so you'd have to wait until like the morning of. Uh, yeah, that would seem to be a good time. Um, hmm. Well, if we say, I don't know, if it's fifty-fifty without the. Without the tip, uh, <laughs> I'd go up to I'd go up to uh, I'd go up to fifty point two. <laughs> uh, I'd yeah. say a well a well executed psych. I'm not saying that this one would land. <laughs> right. This one this one might just be a glancing blow, and then I'd say nothing. But mm-hmm. if you landed a psych, I would give you um, I would give you an extra a win every five hundred games. <clears throat> I bet there are, there are pitchers. Who would make me go uh, a point or two? I don't know who they are, but I bet they're out there that this would actually get in their head. Football players are all about psychs, you know. Like when you hear about, um, uh, you know, football, what they what they say to each other, I mean, like Richie Incognito saying these things in the. Wasn't it him who was saying things to to opposing players, opposing linemen? to try to get a rise out of them. I mean, they're all, and NBA is just all about the psych, you know, it's all about trash talk and psyching people out. And mm-hmm. Greg Maddox, you know, with the famous psych, Greg Maddox, I, I don't know if this is considered a psych, but you know the story of Greg Maddox, right? In spring training. Mm-hmm. Do you know this? He would like, a, he would apparently like, like allow guys to hit home runs on pitches that, Oh, that, uh-huh. right, right, right. Yeah, like, like he would basically set him up for like four years down the road by allowing uh-huh. you know home runs in spring training. So uh-huh. I don't know if that's quite psyching, but um, it, baseball does seem to be a largely psych-free sport. Yeah, I wish there were more psyching. Uh huh. Um, can we do another? Last one. Okay, Eric uh, Hartman asks. Seems that there are a lot of transcendent defensive performances in the last few years. Uh, he mentions that this is something that we mentioned not too long ago. I was wondering if these stats adjust as defense does. Maybe I'm wrong, but in the last few years, it seems that there's been a greater emphasis on defense than during the late 90s and early 2000s. Therefore, wouldn't even better performance be needed to be a plus five defender? Wouldn't this mean that the incredible numbers being put up by Manny Machado and Carlos Gomez be even that much better? Than a similar score would indicate from 15 years ago, or is league-wide DRS or UZR simply rising? 
So it seems to me that, uh, I mean, we don't have a large enough sample with those particular stats to say that that those were historically out of line. We only have them back, you know, a little over a decade. Um, but in principle, uh, I mean, those things are are relative to average, right? So yeah. in principle, it should be more and more difficult to post numbers like that. I mean, it's the old, uh, that, that Stephen Jay Gold argument about why there are no 400 hitters anymore. And obviously there are many factors that could explain that. But one of them, he, he makes the case that, as uh, or when when the level of competition is lower, it's easier for the truly elite players to sort of feast on the, on the weaker ones, uh, and that there is kind of a a right wall, sort of a maximum of the the human limit of how good you can be at a sport. And as the the level of competition rises in the sport, there are more and more people closer to that level. So there's less of a gap between the really good players and just the average player. The average keeps rising closer and closer to the elite, and therefore it's harder to, you know, hit 60 home runs or hit 400 or whatever it is. Uh, so theoretically, that should also apply to defensive stats. And if everyone is getting better at defense, then it should be harder to to be plus 30 or whatever on defense. Yeah. So I don't I know what it what it means that that we still but, see those yeah. numbers. Yeah. I mean, uh, well, yeah. I mean, not every. I guess not everybody. If you if you think that defense is, that that defensive improvement across the league is partly due to the systems that the players are in, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, then and and perhaps also the park the the effect that a park has uh, on defensive metrics then you would say that not all players are necessarily improving at the same rate. <coughs> uh, so, Yeah. Okay. Uh, good questions. Some, some more good ones that maybe we'll get to next week. So please support our sponsor, the Play Index, uh, coupon code BP for a $6 discount. Uh, please send us emails for next week at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. Please rate and review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show on iTunes so that more people will will think that this is a show that they should check out. And please join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Effectively Wild. And we will be back next week with more preview shows. Have a wonderful weekend.